If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9, where we're continuing on from last week. And this morning's text was going to be Luke 9, 23 through 27, but we're just going to do verse 23. <laughs> and uh, Jesus is going to teach us that we need to murder self and live for God. R. Kent Hughes, commenting on James Hunter's book, Evangelicalism and the Coming Generation, rightly, rightly points out that, quote, self-focus is part of the modern evangelical identity. This is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or reaching out to the lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige. But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Christ, no thanks, end quote. Al Mohler, in the foreword to Steve Lawson's book, Made in Our Image, said, quote, the God of the American pop Popular culture is an indulgent, heavenly spirit who is a little threat to our lifestyles and luxuries. A God consistent with the consumer culture and rampant immorality. This God might wish that human beings would behave, but he is powerless when they do not. A vast majority of Americans claim to believe in God, but most believe in an idol of their own imaginations. This deity is always there to be called upon in times of trouble, but he would never intrude upon our personal space, judge our sins, or hinder our happiness, end quote. Lawson himself says in the book, quote, sad to say, we are suffering from a low view of God, an impoverished vision of him as a God with man-like characteristics, a user-friendly God made in our image, an inversion of the truth of man made in his image. Human qualities and finite limitations have been assigned to the one who exceeds our comprehension. Rather than seeing him as he is above and beyond us, infinite in his divine perfections, he is portrayed as a glorified us. The result is a God who makes us feel comfortable, one we can control and manage, even use. This downsized version of God is a diminutive deity dependent upon us. We are not dependent upon him. Forged upon the anvil of a sloppy handling of scriptures and shallow thoughts about God, this user-friendly sovereign is a strange kind of codependent God, and we see the effects of his influence all around us. Many churches have become nothing more than entertainment centers, giving slick performances to growing numbers of mesmerized but unproductive churchgoers." And it is this selfish approach to God and Christ and the church and the word of God, which has led to entire generation of religious hedonists who think church is a place they come to, to be served, to be pampered, to have their lusts fulfilled, their style of music played, and their programs offered in just the way they want. Church to them is a spiritual shopping mall where they wander about rejecting most items but picking and choosing a few which will satisfy their lusts. If the preacher causes them to be aware of their sin or God forbid to feel guilty, that preacher is at once labeled a legalist. If the preacher warns of hell, threatens of judgment, speaks of the wrath of God to come, and the eternal punishment of sinners in hell, that preacher, he's unloving, he's unkind, he's harsh, he's condemning, and he's mean-spirited. And if the worship leader doesn't play songs which appeal to people's sensual lusts, and, and they don't have a beat which kind of moves them and is repetitious and driving, the worship leader's a dinosaur. He's out of touch, he's incompetent, and they could care less what the words say as long as they feel good when they sing. 
But the worst thing about today's religious hedonism is it causes those who are ensnared by it to despise obedience to Christ. Preach to them about the necessity of obeying Christ, of following Christ, of submitting to the word of God, of pursuing holiness. They are confident you are preaching works salvation. In their mind, the grace of God is a license to sin without impunity. Grace will cover it. It is an irrevocable ticket to heaven and it matters not how they live. Press them to obey. Press them to submit to the word of God. And you're a Pharisee. You're a dangerous heretic to be avoided at all costs. Their God is a God of love, of grace, and mercy only. And they receive the love, and they receive the grace, and they receive the mercy because it's all about them and what God can do for them. God to them is a heavenly vending machine that they use to get what they want. Religious hedonism is self-indulgence powdered with a fine coating of Christian jargon. It's about God making you happy and God worshiping you. The present day religious hedonism begs for a important question to be asked. And it is this. What part does works and obeying Christ have to do with Christianity? And the question might be asked in two different ways. You could ask it this way. First, what works must you do in order to earn salvation? Well, hopefully this question just causes all sorts of sirens and alarms to go off in your head because the answer is none because you can do nothing to earn your salvation. It is a free gift of God's grace, which is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Secondly, we might ask it this way. What works must you do as a necessary consequence of salvation? And it is the answer to this question that religious hedonists have wrong. Because they answer in the same way. None. None. They deny that salvation changes a person's life. But the word of God teaches, as we shall see this morning, that those who are truly saved are given God's grace, transformed by that grace, understand what God wants them to understand, and they begin on a path of obedience and perpetual growth in holiness. Not as the earning of salvation, not so they can merit salvation, not because they have to do this, So God will like them and save them. But as the necessary consequence result of God's saving grace working in their life. The Bible says that when someone is saved, God regenerates them. So they become new creatures in Christ. Old things pass away and all things become new. And if you think you are saved and yet are still the same old creature, believe me, You're not saved. Again, it's not that Christ's followers must follow and obey him in order to cause their salvation or earn their salvation. People are saved by grace through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But after becoming saved... The grace of God changes a person because the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling in them and he who begins a good work in them will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Whom he called, he glorified. Whom he chose, he justified. God is the one who calls and justifies and sanctifies and glorifies. He does it. 
necessarily, and he loses none. A pattern of obedience to Christ and growth and holiness is not the exceptional behavior of an extra few fanatical godly Christians. It is normal, necessary, average Christian behavior. You walk into a room and it's dark, so you flip on the light switch. Now, is the light on if the light doesn't come on? No. (laughs) The switch is broken, the wiring's broken. The breakers flipped, or the light bulbs burn out. No light, light's not on. In the same way, is someone saved who doesn't follow Christ? No, the light's not on. I tell you these things because from here on out in Luke's gospel, we are going to be learning about Real Christianity. And it is a Christianity which is quite unlike the Christianity you hear about in most books, most Christian magazines, and most churches. And as I preach through the text today, I am confident that some of you are going to feel uncomfortable. And your first thought is going to be wonder, what's wrong with me? How could I teach these things? Well, just save your emails. Save your the ink in your pens and the lead in your pencils. Don't waste your time accusing me of teaching works salvation. I do not teach works salvation. I have never and will never because salvation is by grace. But I do teach and will always teach that salvation and the power of God in a person's life, His grace necessarily changes you into a follower of Christ. And it's my desire to see those of you who are not saved to become saved. Nothing grieves me more than to know that there are people who hear me preach who can leave here and not be saved. And for the rest of you who already know Christ, learn, grow, Know what salvation is better. Know how to share the gospel better. And know what real Christianity is better. So let's get to the word. Luke chapter 9. Now we've already looked at verses 18 through 22. In verse 18, Jesus is praying alone with his disciples. And he realizes that he is difficult times are coming. And so he wants them to know this, and he begins to teach them um, about his identity. He begins at square one, like the famous quote by you know Vince Lombardi to professional football players, this is a football. Jesus starts out in the same way, who am I? I mean, that's about as you know, no-brainer as you could get. They throw out some popular opinions, that, you know, uh, you know, some say a prophet, John the Baptist, uh, you know, they, they, Elijah, they're, they're given, given him some options. But finally, the truth comes out. Peter then utters the correct answer, which was given to him by divine revelation. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus verifies in front of his disciples. And when I say disciples, don't just think of the 12. Um, uh, think of probably the whole group of those men and women who've been following him. Maybe even a couple hundred people. We don't know. But we've seen that there's, when it says disciples, it doesn't just always mean 12 unless it says 12. But he says in front of these people, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. By saying to them that what Peter just said is true. Now, at this point, it's become definitively clear who Jesus is. And it's the most thrilling news that could ever be confirmed. But Jesus says, but don't tell anybody. And he gives them the reason why. Because I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to suffer, die at the hands of the leaders there, and then be raised up. And 
Jesus' whole point is, is listen, if you run around now and tell everybody I'm the Messiah, there will be so many people who will be coming that that won't occur most likely. And so don't tell anybody yet. Now, it's not recorded in Luke's gospel, but it's recorded in the parallel text in Matthew 16:22 and Mark 8:32 that Peter then upon hearing that Jesus would die, pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. The Lord of glory, you surely will not die. And this then prompted Jesus to rebuke Peter and say, "Get behind me, Satan." Peter, in opposing the will of God, was acting like the adversary of God, Satan. So Jesus gives him that title to expose the folly of his actions, that he was just merely concerned about himself and what he wanted for Peter. Luke leaves these details out and instead, after recording Jesus' predicted death, then records for us that Jesus then told all of those who were present that guess what? You're going to have to die too. And so follow along as I read Luke chapter 9 verses 23 through 27. This is God's word to you. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So this text explains four necessary truths which every Christian must know and experience in order to get to heaven, to be saved. And we're going to look at the first one. And that is this. The death you must die. Look at verse 23. And he was saying to them all, just stop there for a minute. We know from the parallel text in Mark 8.34 that when it says them all, he's not just talking about the 12. He's not just talking about the wider group of his disciples in general, but he's talking about everyone because Mark says he summoned the crowd with his disciples. The crowd. William Hendrickson in his commentary on Luke says, quote, Jesus calls to himself the multitude for the earnest exhortation which follows is of significance to all. In fact, it is for all a matter of life or death of everlasting life versus everlasting death, end quote. So picture in your mind, Jesus probably, you know, told Peter and the apostles, you know, this, tell the crowd to give us some space. And so Jesus then goes off. He's probably still within eyeshot of the crowd. And the crowd is kind of like a bunch of vultures. They're kind of just, you know, are they done praying yet? Have they stopped yet? And they're there, but Jesus and the disciples are alone. The crowd's waiting to see a miracle, to get healed, to hear Jesus teach, whatever. And so they're waiting. So Jesus now, after speaking personally to his disciples, the group of disciples, men, women, not just the twelve, then then says, okay, go, go bring everybody in. Because now we're going to do some universal address. And then he launches into what we just read. So Jesus now has this huge group of people in front of him. His 12, his other disciples, and this multitude. Surely in the multitude, there are people who are interested in Jesus. Interested in following him. Fascinated by what's going on, his miracles. Wondering if this could be the Messiah. 
And surely there were some in the multitudes who were on the brink of possibly following Jesus. Jesus knows this. Just as there are probably some here this morning who are interested in Christianity, who may be thinking, you know, I might be become a, I might become a Christian. I, I might commit my life to Christ. I don't really know what it means. I don't really know what that involves, but I'm here and I'm listening. And so tell me. So I am. I'm going to tell you what Jesus says it means to be a Christian. And verse 23 continues, look there, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me. Now you have to stop, This is the, these words are just loaded. See that little word wishes or desires there? You have to realize that this never happens apart from God's grace. Nobody ever wishes to follow Jesus apart from God's grace. So right off the bat, when Jesus says, if anyone wishes or wills to come after me, he's implying by this that there are some that the Spirit of God is working in who are now being drawn to Christ. The verb is an active tense and it identifies those who are continually being drawn or desiring or wishing to come after Jesus. Jesus in John 6.44, speaking of the irresistible grace of God, which draws sinners to repentance, said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And if God draws you, you will be raised up in the resurrection to life in the last day. The word draw means to draw or pull along. It is used of fishermen who would throw out their nets and draw them in, bringing the fish with them. The reason anyone ever wishes or wills to follow Christ is the Holy Spirit of God is moving in them to draw them to a place where they want to know and follow Jesus. It is the work of God. Coming to Jesus is not something that a natural man does on his own. It amazes me to no end and ekes me um, to degrees greater than I can express when I read things that are sent to me about being seeker sensitive. Mm. Jesus, after speaking, speaking to Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again, in order to enter the kingdom of God, says these words in John three nineteen through 20. This is the biblical estimation of men in general, apart from the Holy Spirit drawing them to Christ. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. But men, they love darkness... Rather than light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. And who is the light? which when coming into the world enlightens every man? Jesus. What did Jesus just say? No one comes to me on their own ever. When a person does not know Christ and does not have the Holy Spirit of God and God's grace working in them to draw to Christ, they don't want to come. They're repelled by the light. They're repelled by Jesus who himself is the light of the world. Light is a synonym for truth. And when truth is present, it shines in the light, error is exposed, and judgment is promised. This is why, and I'm sure everybody who's a Christian has experienced this, you're at work, you're having lunch with somebody, or talking to a neighbor, or whatever, 
And all of a sudden you bring up, uh, you know, something God says. They're, they're, they're sharing their opinion on some political issue or some moral issue or whatever. And you just happen to put out there, well, you know, the Bible says. And all of a sudden they kind of get this stern look on their face. And they instantly become defensive or they want to change the subject or they become angry or condemn you as being self-righteous. And you wonder in your heart, why is this? I mean, they were sharing their opinion. I shared God Almighty's opinion. And now they're mad. Well, the reason they're mad is because when God's opinion is shared, truth is shared. And when truth is shared, sin is exposed. And when sin is exposed, judgment is the necessary consequence. And they don't want judgment. They don't want to be reminded that judgment is coming. They don't even think it exists. They would rather not discuss it. In John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus speaks to the coming of the coming of the Holy Spirit after his death and resurrection. And Jesus says, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, when you speak the truth to somebody, the Holy Spirit is working in that truth. That is why the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and piercing and judging. Hebrews 4.12 And so when you let out the truth, ah, they get it. And they get defensive. Ow. What you're saying judges me. I don't like it. The children of Satan love their sin and love their master so much that they would follow him even though he desires to see them destroyed. You come along, speak the truth of God's word, and you're pushing them towards their doom. They feel like they're standing on the edge of an active volcano, on the rim of a volcano, and you're behind them going, this is what God says, and they don't like it. Paul explaining the sinful condition of every man and every man's normal response apart from the grace of God says this in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Paul writes... As it is written, he's quoting other texts in the Bible and assembling them together. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. Listen to this. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Well, that puts a damper if you're waiting for people to come seek Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost, not to be found by those who were seeking on their own. God's grace, though, works in people's lives so that they want to seek Him. And all of you who know Christ as your Savior have experienced this. There was a point in your life where all of a sudden religion seemed like the right thing. And maybe you got interested and maybe there was a process and you just started hungering and asking more questions and, you know, getting more information and finally you came to the Lord. Maybe it happened all of a sudden. Maybe you weren't seeking God and just all of a sudden somebody came, shared with you, and there was this compelling urge to accept and believe and follow Jesus. Whatever the spectrum, whatever the case, when you start talking to somebody and instead of getting mad, they get more interested. They ask more questions. They all of a sudden start feeling the enormity of their sin. They realize they've sinned against a holy God that they deserve to be judged and they want to be saved and they want to follow Jesus and they want to turn from their sin. You know you've got the real deal happening there. None of this manipulation, none of this, well, you know, I'll tell you what. um, If you just pray this prayer, if you just raise your hand, listen. That's not how it works. It's a work of God in a person's heart. And when God works in their heart, people come. Some fast, some slow, but they all come. Now look at the the middle of verse 23. 
where Jesus begins to explain what it means, what it costs to be one of his disciples. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, the first thing is he must deny himself. Notice Jesus doesn't say he must say no to sin sometimes. He doesn't say that. He say he doesn't just say you need to deny yourself at times or you should deny yourself, but he says you must deny yourself. I know this is a hard pill to swallow for those who have been brainwashed with the self-love and self-esteem gospel which has infiltrated the church at every level and every bit of Christian literature and books and all kinds of things. Organizations such as Focus on the Family or the Minnithmeyer Clinic teach that people need to feel good about themselves, have good self-esteem, need to love themselves because after all, how can you love God if you don't love yourself? How can you love others if you don't love yourself? That teaching is antithetical to the Bible. The problem is that people are born loving themselves too much. That's the problem. I think about it. Why do people get angry? Because they don't get their way. Love of self. Why do people get depressed? Because they don't get what they want. And they get into a funk. The love of self. Why do people get divorced? Because they aren't getting what they want. Why do people kill people? James tells us, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. That's why. The love of self. Sin is the love of and idolatry of self. And people don't need to be told they're basically good And told that they need to love themselves and to have good self-esteem. They need to be told, you need to die to you. Because you're getting in the way of what God wants to do in you. You need to have Christ in you, the hope of glory, not you in you. No, what people need to learn is how to die to self Paul, speaking of the Christian life, says in Galatians 5.24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is he talking about there? Well, you know, when you want things, you lust for things, you desire things. He says, those who know Jesus are those who have learned to say no to their sinful lusts. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, Paul explains that the Christian is to put no confident confidence in the flesh or their, you know, their personal strength and resources. And he uses himself in his example, if you remember the text. He says, you know, if anybody has a right to boast, it's me. It's me. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, a very prestigious tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to law of Moses. You want to talk about fanatic? I was a Pharisee. The most strict fanatical sect of Judaism. Not only that, according to the law, that is according to external obedience of the law, I was blameless. Did everything he was supposed to externally. Then you would think that With all that heritage and all that self-achievement, Paul would feel pretty good about himself. He had some good self-esteem. He'd really love himself for being so wonderful. Instead, this is what he says about himself. Philippians 3, verse 7 and following, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. A very mild translation of a word that means dung or manure. So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. 
That people is diametrically opposed to self-esteem and self-love. Paul's estimation, his self-esteem of himself, is recorded in 1 Timothy 12, 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting in me into service. Here's his estimation of himself. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because, here's his estimation of himself, I acted ignorantly in unbelief two verses later in verses 15 and 16 he calls himself the foremost of sinners and the chief of sinners good estimation biblical estimation good self-esteem david says in psalm 51 17 the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart oh god you will not despise when you see yourself as a wayward sheep as one who has sinned against god as one who deserves judgment deserves hell cannot offer god anything you're finally getting to the place you need to be you're finally getting to the death to self stage and when jesus calls us To deny ourselves, he uses the strongest form of the command in the middle voice. The middle voice means you got to participate. He calls you to willingly, of your own accord, say no to you. To set aside your desires, your wants, your lusts, what you want, and to bring your life in submission to Jesus. Secondly, if you look at the text, Jesus explains that a Christian must not only deny themselves, but he clarifies what he is talking about by saying, and take up his cross daily. I'm telling you, this raises the bar as high as it can be raised. This is just, you can't raise it any higher than this. The cross was a symbol of death by crucifixion. The cross was an instrument by which people suffered a torturous death. Crucifixion is one of the most torturous methods of execution ever concocted by man. And when someone was crucified, they were forced to carry their own cross. They would start carrying their cross from the place of judgment or from when they were in prison to the crucifixion site. You recall that Jesus, remember, was on his way, and because he had been beaten and hadn't been given any food or water, and he was scourged, he had lost so much blood, he couldn't make it all the way, and so somebody had to be forced to carry Jesus' cross part of the way to finish up the journey to Golgotha. And crosses were heavy pieces of timber, They might have weighed anywhere between 70 and 150 pounds, depending on how large the timbers were and how wet they were. And those of you who have been backpacking, you know that a 50-pound pack is a burden. I mean, even when you have a nice, soft, cushy pack frame with nice padded shoulder straps and a big, thick, padded belt that snugs around your waist to distribute the load in your hips, a 50-pound pack is a burden. Well, multiply that times two or three, and imagine what it would be like carrying a rough sawn chunk of wood across through town in front of everyone, people looking on in horror, some laughing, some hissing, some jeering, some glad you're being crucified because they needed some entertainment for the day. And all the time, the edges of the cross are digging into your back and splinters are piercing your flesh. If you try to stop and even adjust the load, there's an instant crack of the whip. And some Roman soldier is saying, Get on! And you feel that searing pain run through your body. And to make things worse, you know that with every step, you're headed for unimaginable pain. More pain than you have ever experienced before. Every step takes you closer to monstrous misery. But you must take up your cross. Because that's how it is. Everybody carries their own cross. 
And once at the crucifixion site, several brawny men hold you down while another man with metal spikes and a hammer pounds big spikes through your flesh, through your wrists, and through your ankles. Archaeologists have found that ankle, have found ankle bones with the spikes still stuck in them. And in never before experienced pain and agony, you scream as you watch your body being nailed to the cross. And then several men pick up the cross with you nailed to it, and they drop you into a hole dug for the base of it, and you feel your flesh tear as they prop you up so everybody can watch you die slowly. And this is just the beginning because now you have expert torturers who are then trained to keep you alive as long as possible so you can suffer and be the best example you can possibly be of crossing Rome. So they wake you up when you faint and they give you water when you thirst so you can die very slowly. Crucifixion is death by torture perfected. And believe me, everybody that Jesus is speaking to in this text knew about it. And I'm sure that when Jesus said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross, people just went, and there was a gasp. I'm sure of it. Take cross. Everyone knew what Jesus was referring to. But Jesus wasn't speaking of literal crucifixion. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he says that we have to do it daily. And you can only be crucified literally once. So the question then remains, how does one take up their cross daily to follow Jesus? Well... First, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean putting up with your unreasonable boss or enduring your nagging mother-in-law or having to listen to your neighbor's yapping dog or bearing up under some sickness or trying circumstance. That is not taking up your cross. You hear people say, oh, we've all got our own crosses to bear. It's true, but it doesn't mean what they think it means. What they mean by that is, well... We always don't get what we want. Self-love again. Remember that in verse 22, Jesus predicted his death. And so we have an advantage because now we know from our side of the cross, looking back, what Jesus went through when he died. And so we can look at that. And I've come up with four primary principles concerning what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross. This is what it means. First, it must be voluntary. We know that Jesus voluntarily came to earth to offer himself up as the Lamb of God. You remember in John ten eighteen, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority from the Father to take it up again. No one is killing me. He also said, you know, I could call for legions of angels. They would come to my rescue. Jesus died because he willingly offered himself up. Secondly, if you're going to take up your cross, it must be an act of self-sacrifice of dying to self. If you remember, Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be your will, Can we pass this stage? (laughs) Can we, you know, get away from dying on the cross? Yet not my will, but thy be done. Which tells us, though he personally didn't want to die on the cross, yet he was there to do what? Die to self and live for who? The Father's will. The Father's will. And so he then made his will, the Father's will, by laying aside what he personally wanted and what was God's will for him. Third, it must be motivated by love for someone else, not love for self or personal gain. The Bible makes it clear that the reason God gave his only begotten son was love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
He loves us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He loves us while we were yet enemies, while we were hostile. He had set this love upon us, unconditionally loving those who were in fact unlovable. Fourth, taking up your cross involves, must involve the knowledge that pain is coming and a willingness to endure whatever pain is coming for the sake of someone else. You know, it's one thing for someone to trick you and say, hey, you want to come over for a barbecue and fun and games? And then to tie you up and torture you slowly to death. It's another thing for them to say, hey, you want to come over so I can tie you up and slowly torture you to death and you to say, okay. See, there's a whole different spectrum there. Jesus, knowing what would happen beforehand, telling his disciples over and over, I must suffer. I must die. I must be crucified. And three days later, rise again from the dead. Knowing all that would happen, willingly went into it. And he did it for who? For you and for me. For someone else. You put these principles together and you understand what Jesus is talking about when he says you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Jesus commands you to voluntarily set aside what you want to do with your life and live your life for him. Submitting every area of your life, your hobbies, your job, everything to his will to give him glory and honor. And he has promised that sometimes this will involve suffering. Some people suffer to different degrees, but they're suffering. It may mean losing a job, losing a friend, losing a parent, losing a mother, losing children, losing whatever, doing what is right, following God's word, sometimes leads to pain, lots of pain. And so, when Jesus said, deny yourself and take up the cross, that's... In the words of the Four Spiritual Laws pamphlet, is God's wonderful plan for your life. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ tells you here that you must murder self and live for God if you want to go to heaven. You take your idolatrous, self seeking will by the throat. You hold it down, you slit its throat, you drain out its blood, you bury it in the ground, and then you keep watch over the grave. Because, man, it, it has the power of self-resurrection. And we all know this. You, you get so sick of certain sins in your life if you're a Christian. You just, man, you just beg God with all your heart to get these things out of my life. I'm never doing that again. Ten minutes later, you do it again. You confess it again and bury it down there with repentance and stare. This is what the Puritans called the mortification of sin. Mortification, a word, fancy word, meaning death of sin in your life. If you want to do more study on this, the best book I know of is written by Puritan John Owen. Considered by many to be the greatest theologian who has ever lived. Owen wrote three different uh, treatises. The first was called On the Mortification of Sin in a Believer. Second, Of Temptation. And third, The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of Indwelling Sin. The Puritans didn't really have (laughs) cute titles. But these three works were later combined... And there are modern versions today, so they aren't in Elizabethan English. And the work is titled, Sin and Temptation. And if you're looking for a good book to go through in your small group, I double dog dare you. (laughs) This book isn't going to tell you you're okay and I'm okay. It's going to tell you how to keep your sin dead. My favorite quote from the book is this. See if you can even understand what this means. Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Every Christian knows what that means. Just when you think in your life, 
that you've got some area taken care of. You've prayed that thing into dust. You've repented of it into oblivion. You've confessed it from one end of the spectrum to the other. You've memorized verses against it. And you, 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 it hasn't even showed its head for months. You can't even remember the last time you fell into it. And finally you say, you know what? I think I can just turn my back on this burial plot and go after another sin. You turn your back and all of a sudden you feel the knife. It has jumped out of the grave and has run you through. Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet and its waters for the most part deep when they are still. It's under there and just waiting for you to drop your guard. Now, if you are out there and you're thinking to yourself, Jack, I I think there must be some mistake. This is the Christianity that I know about. Then you don't know Christianity. This is it. Jesus will say the same thing in Luke 14, but way stronger. That is a scary passage. And it also appears in Matthew 10 and Matthew 16 and Mark 8. Repeatedly in the Gospels, we are told to die to self, to crucify ourselves, to take up our cross. Third and finally, look at the last phrase in verse 23. Jesus says, and follow me. Following Jesus means following in his footsteps or to live the way that he lived. Peter in 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Peter goes on then to describe how Jesus suffered and died for us. Following Jesus means obeying him. Jesus says in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And you need to do what Jesus commands you. Not out of duty, not out of compulsion, not out of mere fear of hell, not in an effort to earn salvation, to make God like you so he'll give you salvation. You need to do it because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. Because they created everything, they created you, they give you your every life, and you were created for the very purpose of giving them glory. It's why you exist. That's why. Now, if you want to go into the the New Testament, try and find verses that tell you how to follow Jesus. It's the whole New Testament, the whole Bible is all about living for God. I'm just going to give you one example. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And just show you this one text. And again, you know, there's lots. But I want to show you this one because it brings to bear what we've talked about early, earlier about works and relationship to salvation. Notice what Paul says, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, or any impurity, or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And do you notice what he said in verse 5 there? Let's look at it one more time. For this you know with certainty. Every Christian knows this. This is a no-brainer. What's a no-brainer? That no immoral or impure person or covetous man, all these things just amount to self-love, idolatry, who is an idolater, has an inheritance, and the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Now, was Paul teaching work salvation here? (laughs) Obviously not. Paul is the champion who teaches us salvation is not by works, but by grace, and that we are justified by faith. So then, why does Paul say, you must live for Christ, and if you don't, you don't go to heaven? If salvation is not by works, then why must you do works to get to heaven? Again, there's two ways to understand in order to get to heaven. One is causatively. You must do good works in order to earn merit, deserve, make God like you enough so you can get to heaven. The other is consequently. You must do good works because salvation and the grace of God changes you so you want to follow God. You remember what the new covenant said in Jeremiah 31, 31, I will put my spirit in them and I will cause them to walk in my way. Cause them. He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God will bring it to pass even when we are unfaithful. True salvation is a powerful work in a person's life. And if there's no fruit of salvation, if there's no obedience to Christ, we know with certainty that that person is not going to heaven. Hendrickson commenting on verse 23 says, it might be paraphrased this, quote, if anyone wishes to be Counted as my adherent, he must once and for all say farewell to self, decisively accept pain, shame, persecution for my sake in my cause day in and day out. He must then keep on following me as my disciple. He must subject himself to my discipline, end quote. Henderson goes on to warn that this text is not to be taken chronologically. Jesus is not saying, first, you must deny yourself for a while, then you must take up your cross for a while, figuratively speaking, and then you must follow me for a while, and then you can live for yourself and sin all you want. This is cumulative. You must always be denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Jesus' followers follow him because Jesus makes them, by his grace, followers. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. The New Testament is replete with texts like this. Now, I know what some of you are thinking out there because people tell me after the service. (laughs) I'll just save you from walking up. Um, You're thinking to yourself, but Jack, Jack... You know, I mean, I can't say I've just totally turned from every sin and never looked back and, and, you know, just, uh, that I've just, you know, reached this like, you know, state of, you know, Wesleyan perfection. I, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner big time, you know, and, you know, I, you're scaring me now because I don't know if I'm saved or not. Well, listen, the Bible says that everyone sins, even believers. For instance, 1 John 1.8 says, If a person says he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, But if we confess our sins, and he uses an active tense there, if we are always in the process of confessing our sins, which means we're always in the process of sinning, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There will always be continual forgiveness for those who continue to sin. The righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. The scriptures teach that that the Christian life is a battle against sin. You don't come to Christ, repent, believe, and become perfect. But listen to me. There is a progression. There is a path. There is an average inclination upward in holiness. Because God says he will do it. God says he will perfect you. 
God says he will change you from one glory to the next. God does it. And if you look at your life and you say, well, I know the facts and, you know, I know this. Listen, I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about when you look back last month and last six months and last year, are you growing in holiness, your knowledge of the word, your service to the body, your sacrifice for Christ, prayer, witnessing to people, doing normal Christian stuff? And you know what? If you look and you just go, well, and if you have to search, you know with certainty what the case is. You know with certainty because the scriptures tell you with certainty. It's not about calling yourself a Christian. It's about being transformed from the inside out by God's grace. And if you don't know Jesus, then you need to come to him this morning. You just need to cry out to him and say, God, I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not saved. I know I don't have the right motives. I know I've been faking it. And just beg him to save you. He says, the scriptures say, as many as receive me. To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So whatever you're living for now, whether it's your hobby, your job, money, pleasures, whatever, turn your back on that and say, sorry, you're not my God anymore. I've got a new God, the God, man, Christ Jesus, and I am going to receive him, believe him, trust that his person, his death, his resurrection is enough and only enough to save me and nothing I do. And when you do that, when you cry out to God in your heart and you mean that, I want you to know, you'll only do it because of God's spirit within you. And God will transform you from one glory to the next. You will become a new creature. You will never be the same. You will hunger for the Bible, hunger for righteousness. You know, there, there's times in my life where I wish I could read the Bible more. You know, you may think, well, Jack, don't you, you know, you kind of study all day, don't you? Um, not all day. I wish I could. Um, but, you know, even, even there's even times where even in the midst of studying more, I just want to study more. You know, well, I don't want to have to prepare for, some, for somebody. You know, I just want to sit down and just read my Bible. And sometimes there's things that get in the way, just like there's things that get in the way of your life when you want to read the Bible or do whatever. But I'm telling you, it never goes away. And the longer I go without just having some time in the word, the more I hunger. It's like going without food. And I'm starving. I'm starving. Finally, it's like, I don't care. I'm reading my Bible. And I sit down. I just read through it and fill up my soul. If you don't know that, you think, well, my Bible's not a big deal. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. Hell waits for you if you do not repent. And so Jesus came to this earth to save you. He's already paid the price. He's died on the cross. He's made the provision. And he's told me to tell you that if you repent and believe, trusting in what he did on the cross, you will be saved. And he will transform your life forever. There was a faithful Anglican minister who spent the last 23 years of his life. He ministered to humble fishermen in the town of Devonshire, England. A little tiny church there when he got there. He had bad health. And yet, he labored with all of his might for 23 years to serve that community. To preach the gospel. He built up a Sunday school of more than 800 children. And it was said that the entire community was changed because of this one faithful, sickly preacher. And what he liked to do in his spare times is write poetry and hymns. And one of his hymns is based on our text, Luke 9.23. I want to read it. And as I read it, I want you to think if if this is your experience, if you know what he's talking about. Henry wrote this. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. 
human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like man untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends may shun me. Show thy face and all is bright. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, swift shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition and faith to sight and prayer to praise. Every Christian knows that knows what it means, feels that life is but a vapor, like their life is running out, like they need to do more for Christ. And they're continually seeking to set aside self and to follow Jesus. And if that's not you, make it you this morning. Jesus is there before you. He's paid the price and he says, believe in me. And I will give you the free gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It is a very strong text. A text that challenges our thinking, especially the weak gospel and the false views of Christianity prevalent in the world. Father, I pray that we would remember our life is but a short vapor that is here for a little while and then is gone, that we would not be so foolish as to trade a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath. That, Father, we would give ourselves for Christ in this life that we might live and have eternal life with you and unimaginable blessings for all eternity. And for those who are here, Father, who don't know you, who realize they don't know you, Father, bring conviction upon their souls. Help them to realize that judgment is coming unless they repent. And Father, grant them the grace they need to turn from their sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. We know your word says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So, Father, make that happen in hearts this morning. And, Father, for the rest of us, may we seek you, ever denying ourselves, ever taking up our cross, ever following you more and more each and every day until we die and go to be with you or until you come back for us in glory. Father, we pray all these things in your name because we know it's your will. Amen.